When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello folks and welcome to the Metallica Report. I'm Stefan Shirazi, editor of the band So What magazine. And I'm Renee Richardson, director of philanthropy for Metallica's foundation, all within my hands. This is your official weekly Metallica podcast, the only inside source, bringing you all the news from the band's HQ and studios deep in the heart of Northern California. Dude, did you see all the comments in our Spotify feed? We posed the question, what is the most underrated Metallica song? We got some good ones. Yeah, I certainly did see them all, Renee. I saw that Craig Angelo Reyes suggested deeper cuts from Master of Puppets, like yeah. Leopard Messiah and Disposable Heroes. And guess what? Russell, no, and David tend to agree. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> meanwhile, Zoka, Soph, and Bruna picked Low Man's Lyric. I like this one. I'm going to actually read a quote from Tobias. He said, just a bullet away. That riff in the verse is just mean and groovy. The song is really progressive, too, compared to the other songs on Beyond Magnetic. Now, I mean, Tobias, he's going deep already by looking at the Beyond Magnetic EP. So I mean, that was pretty deep. And then getting the most comments as the most underrated song is Fixer. Uh We've got Dougie B, N3D, God of Grind, AJ, Franciscan, and Andres. They all feel that that is the most underrated metallic song. Yeah. Thanks, Spotifyers. And please, all of you out there on Spotify, please do carry on answering the question each week because we're going to be checking in with you. So should we get on with this week? Yeah. What's coming it's exciting. On? Right. Yeah, exactly. This week, we go back to the very earliest days of Metallica with Brian Lou, Ron Quintana and KJ Doughton, three wise men who saw the birth of the band and played vital roles in helping the kid become an alpha adult. Yeah, a lot of Metallica lore comes to light on this episode, and it comes from the guys that were there, Ron, Brian, and KJ. They're going to be giving us their firsthand old-school memories in what will be the first of two special pods, which will simultaneously entertain you hardcore fans while perhaps educating those of you who may not know some of this really early Metallica history. Yeah, and here's the thing that you're going to discover. You know, there's something that bonds all these guys together, and I include the members of Metallica when I say this, and that is that they loved and love music. Mm-hmm. Let's tell you a little bit about these guys first, right? Let's take Ron. He was the editor and creator of the legendary fanzine, Metal Mania. He really did tear it up back in the day on KUSF College Radio with his all-night Rampage radio shows. And even today, he owns a record store in Grass Valley, California, called Ron's Real Radio records and this dude owns over 150,000 pieces wow. of vinyl and i got to tell you Renee and you'll you'll yeah, you'll appreciate this he has the best radio voice ever still right i mean he's got 
that voice. Oh man. I, I, I agree 100%. And especially when he gets excited about something, which you're going to hear a little bit down the line on this podcast. We're also going to hear from Brian Liu, who started writing for Ron's fanzine back in the day before branching out to publish his own whiplash with his buddy, Sam Cress. Now, Brian was a regular at the old Metalla Mansion back in El Cerrito, California. He's also the author alongside Bay Area photographer Harold O of Murder in the Front Row, which incidentally, some of you may already know, is a documentary made by Metallica's friend and friend to all within my hands. Adam Dubin, the great Adam Dubin. I know, I just threw a lot of names at you and a lot of stuff at you, but settle in. This is going to be all good, I promise. Yeah, indeed. And meanwhile, the first ever Metallica fan club came from KJ. He also went on to write the book Metallica Unbound. And as I listen to his story again, I think you can also add being their first ever distributor to his credits. And, yeah. and that's going to make a little more sense as we as we get through this part. What's cool is that these guys also dropped some other very, very important early scene names, uh, ones that are vital in Metallica's history, such as Rich Banger Birch, a.k.a. Skitchy. Bang that head that doesn't bang. His immortal phrase that was on the back of the Killer Mall sleeve lives in not just infamy, I think in glory, actually, it's mm -hmm. got to be said. <laughs> yeah. So settle in. You're going to be going back to the front and the early years of Metallica with some of the guys who are right there. So let's crack on. As we said in the intro, these guys all loved and love music. But uh, let's hear from Ron about how he first met Lars in what would prove to be a Rubicon moment in the history of not just heavy metal music, but music. My God, we listened to everything from Motorhead to Budgie to Black Sabbath to Iron Maiden to everything up on the hill of Strawberry Hill in Golden Gate Park in the middle of nowhere, away from the cops. When one day my friend Rich Birch Skitchy brought a strange new kid up to the hill and we all gathered around him and his amazing jacket full of patches of bands many of us have only heard whispers about and we quizzed him and he talked funny. He had this interesting accent, which we couldn't quite figure out but he was sure sharp on every single band we'd seen or definitely wanted to see. So this strange little kid that we were quizzing happened to be a guy named Lars Ulrich, or as he said, Lars Ulrich. We, he had many names, but he was the man. He was the kid that we discovered. And I listened intensely to every word. <laughs> and me and Skitch went to his pacer or Gremlin, I forget which one it was. <laughs> and we went to record stores all over the Bay Area. And the three of us hung out for a while, just talking nonstop, metal, metal, metal. So we had a great time. And then that kid, Lars Ulrich, had to go back home to L.A. Ah, 
and so it begins. And sidebar, Strawberry Hill, which is at the apex of Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, smack dab in the middle of Stowe Lake. So in those days, just picture it. You could go from boombox to boombox to hear music and share music. It's just, it's fantastic. So hearing Ron talk about his first Lars encounter just scratches the surface. By the way, Strawberry Hill ain't Hippie Hill. No. Let's just make that very, very <laughs> Not clear. at all. There's this overlap that you guys are going to hear in the history between these three guys, Ron and Brian and KJ, without them ever knowing what was going to happen with this band. As noted, when Brian Liu explains how he first came to learn about Metallica and what he thought. I first got their demo tape from KJ Doughton, and the first the thing that I gravitated towards was they sounded like a European band, because up until that time, I was really into new wave of British heavy metal bands and a lot of European bands, and Metallica sounded like a European band, and when I found out they were from Los Angeles, it kind of blew my mind, because they did not sound like your standard American rock and roll, or even, you know, heavy metal band. Like, you know, heavy metal to me at the time for American bands was like Blue Oyster Cult or Van Halen, and Metallica sounded like Motorhead. And not too long after that musical discovery, Brian would meet the young European-style metal band in person at what would become a historic event. So the first time I met the band was actually in front of of the club before their very first San Francisco show. It was a, on the sidewalk, actually. It was at the Stone in San Francisco before they played their first show, I guess outside of LA even. So I believe I talked to Lars over the phone previously to kind of arrange the meet. But you know, literally the first time I met face-to-face with them was on the sidewalk in North Beach in San Francisco. You know, these pimply-faced teenagers got out of their U-Haul van. And then, you know, I was the pimply-faced teenager with my friends who are also pimply-faced teenagers. And, you know, that's where we first met. Ah, yes. Acne, the stone. (laughs) And there was this little Mexican place a few doors down from the stone that Cliff loved. Uh, He loved it. And uh, Mm. it was actually that he bought me there when I first came to the city and made me eat the green, maybe eat this green chili. And I very innocently got my mouth burnt off. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) so cool. Look, why don't we hear from the man who made sure Brian Lou would hear Metallica in the first place? KJ Doughton. And here's another wild thing. I realized this guy's probably responsible for the No Life Till Leather demo ending up in my suburban London neighborhood back in the day with yeah. our little metal militia. Here he is. I called Lars because we were so enthused with the demo tape. I think he was living with his mom at the time in Southern California. And so I said, yeah, I'm KJ. I'm a big fan from Oregon. And he said something like, well, fuck, man, you're kidding. How could this be? He was really enthusiastic that someone so far out in the sticks would know about Metallica, would have anything to do with them or have heard their demo tapes. And so our relationship kind of bloomed from there. So it wasn't like I stumbled onto him in the streets of San Francisco on Strawberry Hill or something like Ron Quintana and some of the other guys that were in the Bay Area. I was very by myself, isolated out there. And we would call each other. So that was kind of meeting the band, but it was in a vicarious way. It was... I was not in the middle of L.A., was not in the middle of San Francisco, but he was so enthused that someone out there would take such an interest. He had me do the fan club. I said, is there any way I can help you? And he said, yeah, maybe you can take our mail and you can send demo tapes to various key people out there. And so anyway, I became the guy who not only did we send out fan club kits and have the badge and the patch and the buttons and the pictures and whatnot and the t-shirts, but I think the biggest thing about the fan club that was important was the fact that so many demo tapes were dubbed and sent off to different people. 
And so Lars was kind of my commander. He would say, here's what I want you to do. <laughs> and one of the things, actually, I'm looking at one of the old letters he sent me, and it was basically a playlist. He said, here are a few addresses to add to the overseas list. And so he's got someone here, Matthias Prill from West Germany, for example. There's another guy, uh, Rob Weber from Holland. Mike Salmon from Santa Clara, California. So he'd send me these lists and basically I'd use those lists to send the demo tapes out. And so amongst all the shirts and everything else, I think it was kind of uh, Metallica central for getting demo tapes. And uh, yeah, it wasn't a cracking a whip kind of a thing at all. It was just uh, very much, I'm enthusiastic that you're enthusiastic about us. And I, you know, you want to help us and I appreciate that. I respect that. So come on board for this Metallica journey. And yeah. Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And we are back. We all know the story of how Metallica got their name, but when you get to hear it from the guy at the center of it, Ron Quintana, it's just a little extra. I mean, especially because we're going to hear about the names that didn't make the cut. This is Ron's side of that bit of well-known lore. Me and Lars were always talking about starting a heavy metal record store or a club or even a band, even though I didn't play and I didn't even know he could play. I wasn't sure if he could play any instrument. And I don't think we were the singing type, so he wouldn't be front men, uh, probably. So we talked about names, we'd call it. I had Skull Orchard. I was going to name my first magazine. And then I, I had a list of names for the first magazine and or a store. And one day I saw his names for 
a possible band or store or club based around heavy metal, especially newer bands. And his were all fast car, American car names, fast American car names, Red Vet, Blitzhead. <laughs> uh, you know, kind of takeoffs of Motorhead and some of the bands coming out, but also his own love of American things, American big things. So Blitzhead? Uh, you, you mean that you mean Metallica could actually have been called Blitzhead? I think it was Blitzhead. <laughs> of course, Bl Blitzkrieg Krieg was already taken. Blitzhead, <laughs> so so I had a great list. I didn't think his list was very good. <laughs> I guess he didn't think his list was that great either because he liked a few names on my list. And we both read Encyclopedia Metallica book by Malcolm Dome, the great Malcolm Dome and others. And we all we read all that kind of stuff, but we both liked the name Metallica. But I had some other names and I was leaning towards Metal Mania and for my very first magazine. And that was the last we talked about it for uh, a few months, a few months until he called me one evening in the fall of 1981 and said, I'd like to use that Metallica name for my band I'd like I'm putting together. And I said, sure. Oh, my God. Some of those names. Red Vet. Oh, horrible. <laughs> oh, how different it could have been, huh? <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, I think one of the things that these guys all get across so clearly is what a scene it grew into. Like, you right. know, these were just dudes and gals and people making it happen. You know, there's no, no fancy equation here. You know, mm. they were growing it together. and. I just love the way that Brian explains how the social dynamics of those formative years worked. So in the beginning, you know, maybe the six months I knew him, I mean, they were still living in Los Angeles. So, you know, we weren't hanging out. Once they moved up here, it was a sort of thing where I would see them occasionally. But once they actually settled in the Metallica mansion in El Cerrito, it was a, it was a type of thing where like if I was in the East Bay, my friends and I would just drop by because that's what it was. I mean, we're we're all kids. I mean, that's kind of the thing that kind of is hard to explain to people we were all the same age we we're all kids they were just, they just happened to be in a band we happened to like their band and that's how we interacted so it was a sort of thing where if we ran into them at like a local record store like the record vault in san francisco was kind of ground zero where you know you would literally run into friends or people you kind of knew and it was you know the record stores were the gathering place a lot of times I still think record stores are the best. And I'm really glad that Brian reminds us that they were just kids. Yeah. Like they were just kids with common interests. And I think every one of us can completely relate to that at some point in our lives. That being said, I know we're all very curious to know what Metallica was like as people in those early years. And here's Ron to offer his take. And, and frankly, he starts by stating the obvious. <laughs> Kirk was so cool. We got along about everything Uli, especially Shanker, we talked about Michael all the time. As is kind of obvious, he's he's a huge Shanker UFO uh, fan, and so we he was just so into it, and he was so great to talk to after knowing Bailoff and Gary. <laughs> <laughs> Exodus were so over the top insane. You could actually talk to Kirk. It was amazing. You could we could talk about you know songs. <laughs> riffs, lyrics, <laughs> whereas Bailoff and Gary, when they were around, it was just <laughs> sorry, there's no translation for that. But yeah, so I was always talking about asking Gary's favorite new guitarist. He goes, no, 
it's it's still Shanker, but but have you heard this Ronnie Montrose tune? Have you heard this? Oh man! So I learned a lot from Mr. Kirk about great guitarists and great songs. James, he was the opposite. He was more like the American Kronos. <laughs> Kronos can be a little intimidating. He's been known to chew glass at parties. James never did that, <laughs> but he had that same intensity a lot of the time. And <laughs> so we, we would, you know, we'd be a little more careful around James sometimes, you know, and because uh, he was, he was very serious, but we'd all drink together and relax and everybody, you know, had a good time as long as we had enough beers decent beers or this Stolichnaya, something we couldn't even pronounce, but we all wanted more, more Stoli. <laughs> and of course, Cliff, my God, Cliff was the coolest, the king of cool. And I saw him with trauma and I was actually more checking out the matching leather lightning bolt guitarist outfits of, of the trauma guitarist. When I noticed this amazing guy on the side, just jamming away on, on the bass, he was, he was just amazing to watch in, in 1982. And when Metallica moved up to the city, I, I finally got to talk to him more. And that was, he was the great guy who was in, to early Bloister cult like I was. And he was into all kinds of stuff, which was way beyond me, all kinds of classical and other types of music. But we connected on a lot of the, the first three Blue Oyster cult albums and some of those amazing songs. God damn it. We're out of time for this week. No. But have no fear, because next week we're diving deeper into some old school stories and anecdotes from Ron, Brian, KJ, and uh, I think we might have another voice on the pod next week. Mm. Uh, someone uh, really close to the center of all this, like really close, like four degrees. Hey, are you going to tell <laughs> us? Are you going to tell no, us? Are you no, keep I'm not. Secret? No, people oh. can tune in if they want to hear uh, hear that. But what Dude, I will say is, <laughs> but what I will say is, we are going to hear a story about what it was like headbanging with James Hetfield as he listened to Metallica, which is nice. kind of great. I love that. <laughs> nice. Also, real quick, before we go, we still have the monthly exclusive Metallica merch package giveaway. It's going on every single month. So if you haven't entered the contest yet, do it. All you need to do is follow and share this podcast to be entered. Head to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica to enter. Till next time. See ya. See ya. The Metallica Report is produced by Metallica HQ, Pantheon Media, and PopCult. If you like what we're doing here, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to visit Metallica.com slash podcast to submit your questions, offer your thoughts, and become a part of this podcast. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 